What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Conspiracy Combos. I'm your host, Minnie, uh, and I'm pretty excited about today's episode. We're going to talk about a pretty interesting... It's not... It's not... I guess it's true crime, is what it would fall under. But it's the Circleville Letters. And it's just a whole mess of drama and everything else, but it's it's pretty wild. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to jump into it. Okay, so Circleville is just a... It's a small town in Ohio. It's about 25 miles south of Columbus. And it's a pretty quiet town. Population of roughly about 13,000. So most would consider it a relatively small town. It It is... I looked up the crime... Uh, like the crime statistics for the area. And it's it says it's about 1 in 24. So I guess that's those are fair odds as far as crime goes. So it's not a crazy little town. But... The town itself definitely fell victim to a crazy spree of harassing letters that started in 1976. I think one of the things that makes the case have such a creepy factor to it is that it took place in, in a small town. And when you're when you're from one of those one of those small towns with such a close community, it kind of gives you this sense of security in a way. Because everybody knows everybody, you grew up with or around each other, you know each other's families. So you learn who's safe you know, in what areas to avoid. So the fact that something like this bizarre happened in such a small town definitely rattled some nerves. In the first part of 1976, the whole town started receiving strange harassing letters. And I don't mean harassing like, I know what you did last summer, kind of harassment either. We're talking like sexually explicit, threatening, blackmail type of harassing letters. And it all seemed so out of the blue, too. The people from this town were just living their normal lives, just the, the average day in the average household, doing your thing during the day. Then you realize, oh, hey, I haven't gone to the mailbox and got the mail in a few days. So you go out, grab your mail, and come back in, you start thumbing through everything, and an envelope catches your eye. So you curiously tear into it and start reading the letter inside. And that's when you realize someone, somewhere out there in your little town, has been watching and documenting everything you do. Your secrets and day-to-day -day life are scrawled out in a letter sent to you from an unknown sender. That'd be pretty terrifying, right? And that is exactly what some of the citizens in Circleville went through. So you've got these letters. They're going out to the entire town. And everyone's getting pretty creeped out, which I mean, rightfully so. <laughs> you're getting letters that are telling you everything you're doing. So you know somebody's out there stalking everybody in the town. Obviously, there's a stalker. And they're out there doing their best to terrorize everyone. But no one has a clue who who's writing these letters. And the handwriting's pretty unique, in my opinion. I don't I don't really know how handwriting in the 70s really looked like what was a popular way to write and what wasn't. Uh, my parents have yearbooks that are signed from the early 70s though. And the handwriting in that doesn't, you know, it's nothing crazy. It looks like normal handwriting, but this and these letters was it was blocky. The, the letters were almost like you would see when someone takes a knife or something and carves into wood. They're just carving letters. They're very blocky, very, you know, squared. That's how most of these letters looked with the exception of like the O's, the A's, and the C's. They're, they look a little more like normal letters, but the rest of it's that very wide, very tall, square, blocky writing. So you would think you're getting letters in these you know, weird handwriting, somebody out there would know who they're from. Like, nobody's writing all their letters in this weird, blocky handwriting, right? Or were they? Were the 70s really that weird? I guess you had acid really coming to a head then, so maybe it was. I don't know, but I would have thought it would have been fairly recognizable. Maybe not. 
But so again, the town's getting all these letters. No one knows who or where they're coming from. And one poor woman in particular, he just seemed to have a bullseye on her back as far as the author of the letters were concerned. In the summer of 77, there was a woman named Mary Gillespie who started receiving the letters. And Mary was just a school bus driver for the school. And in the first letter she received, it was basically an accusation that she was having an affair with the school superintendent, who was Gordon Massey. So that's obviously, a, you know, not a good thing. Not something you want getting out there in the town. If you are having an affair with the superintendent, or if you're not having an affair with the superintendent, you don't want that rumor spreading like wildfire in this tiny, small town. So the letter read, Stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about knowing him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified and everything will be over soon. Quick spoiler alert, though. Everything was definitely not over soon by any means. So Mary's rightfully freaked the hell out about this, but decides, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't tell my husband. Maybe I'll just keep it to myself. I'm not going to tell him. So she hides the letters from her husband, Ron, and attempts to just go on about life, which probably would have worked if Ron hadn't received his own letter from the mystery author. So Ron's letter read that if he didn't inform the school of the affair between his wife and Massey, that Ron would be killed. So now Ron's stressed out as well. The couple weren't sure what to do. They didn't want to bring it to any of the attention of really anyone. And circling back to the whole small town thing, not only does everyone know everyone, but they also know everything about everyone's business. So Ron and Mary assumed that if anyone knew about the letter, then there would be rumors circling around the town about her having an affair with Massey. And at this point, Mary consistently denied having an affair with Massey. She said it wasn't true, and basically that she didn't know what the letters were about, but she definitely was not being disloyal to her husband. So by this point, two weeks have gone by, no letters. Ron and Mary are finally breathing a sigh of relief. They've assumed that whoever sent these letters was probably just some sort of messed up prank or something, so they move on with life. Just in time to receive another letter in the mail. This letter was a little more to the point, basically telling them to either come clean about the affair or the author would go to the public about it, and he would post it everywhere. He threatened to go to TV, announce the affair on TV radio, put up billboards, the whole, the whole nine. So at this point, Ron and Mary realize, okay, this probably isn't going away, this is not a prank, and we need to tell someone. They conclude that the best person to tell was Karen and Paul, who were Ron's sister and brother-in-law. And they eventually came to the conclusion, then thought that the letters were probably coming from a man named David Longberry, who was a fellow bus driver who had a thing for Mary. And it seemed that at some point he had made advances toward her multiple times, and all of those times she turned him down. And I guess he figured if the superintendent had a chance, so did he. Um, but they decided that David's definitely behind these letters, so they decided to have Paul, who is Mary's brother-in-law, remember, write him the letter saying that they knew it was him and the letter should stop. Now, I only found this on one source, and I thought it was a little strange that they would have her brother-in-law, you know, contact this guy that's hitting on her. Why wouldn't her husband be like, hey, you know, piss off, that's my wife, whatever. I don't know. That just seemed a little weird to me, personally. Maybe it's not. Maybe you would have somebody that you were close and comfortable with do that. I thankfully have never found myself in a position of receiving letters about being accused of an affair, but I just thought it was a little strange that they were like, hey, Paul, you're the guy for this. Send letters. But he sent the letter to the guy that 
was supposedly harassing her, and they stopped again. So everybody's happy. They've told David to piss off, and all's good in the world again. Till all was not good again. Signs of billboards started popping up all around this town claiming that Ron and Mary's 12-year-old daughter was having an inappropriate relationship with Gordon Massey, who, remember, was the school superintendent. So the focus at this point has shifted from Mary being accused of having a relationship with Massey to Mary's daughter being accused of having a relationship with Massey. Family's completely stressed, furious, everything's going crazy. These letters had stopped, but now they're dealing with signs everywhere to the point that they were getting up early and riding around to pull these signs down before their daughter would get up to go about her day to prevent her from seeing them. So Ron keeps doing this for a bit, and then on August 19th, 1977, it all just completely escalates to a whole new level. So August 19th rolls around, and Ron gets a phone call. He answers it, and a conversation kind of ensues. And it's uncertain who was on the other side of the line. They don't, they're, they're not sure. Um, they don't know who was on the other side of the line or what was said. But whatever was said caused Ron to lose his temper. He grabbed a gun. He indicated to his kids that he was going to go take care of everything once and for all. Took off in his truck. So it's probably safe to say he knew who the caller was and had likely intended to threaten him and scare him into leaving the family alone or possibly take care of it in a whole other degree. However, this never happened. Ron's truck was found not far from his home where he had crashed into a tree and it ultimately ended up being a fatal accident. While investigating the accident, they noticed that Ron's gun had been fired one time. Oddly enough, though, there was, there was no bullet. There was no bullet casing. There was nothing found indicating that, that that the gun had been fired. Which personally leads me to believe that he either fired the gun at another time for a completely unrelated purpose. Maybe target practicing, whatever. Killing a, a, an animal, who knows. Um, that, or the only other thing that would make sense to me was if he were holding the gun out of the window when he fired. And I don't know what type of gun it was that he had or what he was using. I wasn't able to find that. But assuming that it was a handgun, if he were to hold it out the window and fire it that way, I guess, theoretically, the shell could eject out of the out of the gun while he's driving, and then it would fly out into the road somewhere. But in their investigation, they did not find anything like that. They did not find a bullet. They did not find a casing. So they kind of assumed, okay, he fired this recently we think but we're not sure when and then on top of discovering that gun that had been fired once they also noted that ron's blood alcohol content was 0.16 which is twice the legal limit and when the investigation revealed what ron's blood alcohol content was his family and friends were pretty much like okay no pump the brakes that's suspect af and then they explained that he didn't drink he was typically not a drinker and he did not Definitely did not get into a vehicle after drinking. So that was just, to them, absolutely far-fetched. He wasn't typically a drinker. So, but the investigation still insisted that what had happened was an accident, that he had gotten it drunk, veered off the road, smacked the tree. Insisted there was no foul play. The explanation, however, didn't set well with Ron's family. And apparently not the writer of the letter either, because they began again. Letters started pouring out to people in the community that insisted the sheriff was involved in a cover-up. And this furthered the idea that the accident was not actually an accident, but the sheriff again insisted that it was, that Ron had veered off the road and smacked a tree. 
He said that the person of interest had been questioned regarding the strange accident, but that he passed the polygraph test and there was no longer considered a suspect. And by this point, you have the weird letters, the weird accident, and no answers to any of it, and it gets even weirder. Before we jump in and finish it up, though, let's hear a quick word about Anchor, and then we'll come back and we'll find out just how weird all of this really does get. Alright, so quick recap. Mary and Ron are married. Mary gets some weird letters accusing her of having an affair with a school superintendent. Some more letters and stuff go down. Ron leaves in a fit of anger to go after the writers of the letter, but he never actually makes it there, because unfortunately Ron crashes truck and is killed in the accident. Police rule the accident as an actual accident, even though everyone else is just kind of like, uh, no, this is weird. More letters happen that allegedly confirm that, yeah, the accident is in fact weird. Police insist that the accident, no, it's in fact just an accident, and that's where we are in this, and it's about to be so much more. So eventually all the pressure and stress begins to get to Mary, and finally, after her husband dies, she admits to the affair with Massey. She insists, though, that the affair only happened after the letters. Which just seems so damn bizarre to me. You receive these weird letters in the mail that tell you to end your affair with the superintendent, or you and your family are going to be targeted in whatever way. And this just so happens to be the thing that tickles your peach and makes you decide to finally have that affair with Massey. But Mary continues to swear up and down that the affair happens after the letters, somehow manages to keep her job through all of this. And she's driving her route one day, notices a sign on a fence post. And on this sign was apparently written something threatening to her daughter. So Mary decides enough is enough, stops the bus, goes about ripping the sign off the fence, and notices a box while she's pulling the sign off. So she decides to bring it back onto the bus and open it. And the level of just everything about the people involved in this. She's being threatened repeatedly, finds a box, Brings it back onto the bus to open and just assumes it's not a bomb. My very first thought would be, oh shit, it's a bomb. Leave the box where it is and get back in the bus and forget the box ever happened or call the police and let them deal with the box. But I'm definitely not going to pick the box up, go to the bus and open it. Like, I just, I don't know what thought process that was. And turns out, as she opens this box, didn't contain chocolates and roses. Big shocker. But it was a small pistol, and it had been rigged with a string around the trigger. And they think that the idea was that the box would be opened, and it would pull this string tight, I guess. And it would pull the trigger on the gun, and then it would shoot whoever were to rip off the box. Which, it... Okay, this has to be the perfect storm to to pull off anyway. You just assume that it's going to be Mary that finds the sign and rips it down and not just some poor whoever just just seems a little strange someone would would leave a box rigged like that with the odds that Mary would open it but i guess they assumed if they made threats against her and her daughter's life that maybe she would likely be the one to rip down the sign but police investigated and found out that the gun the, the one that was in the box could be traced back to paul same paul from earlier that was ron's brother-in-law so police, police question Paul, and he basically says that he has no idea how that gun got in that box, claiming that it was stolen from his garage long before it showed up in that booby-trapped box. A poor attempt had been made to file off the serial number on the gun, so it is possible that it could have been stolen. It just, it kind of seems unlikely that this man wouldn't report a gun that was stolen, 
when you, you know when you notice it. If a gun is missing from your garage, who knows what else could be? But I guess I guess Paul wasn't concerned about that. He was just like, okay, it's a gun and a bunch of garbage in my garage. I guess I don't know. But police weren't completely convinced, so they decided to have Paul come in and do a handwriting analysis. And they concluded from this test that he was likely the one who had left the box in an attempt to murder Mary, and they arrested Paul. And the handwriting test has been criticized a bit. A lot of people say that when they did the test, they did it incorrectly. But the police were satisfied enough that Paul eventually went to trial. And even though he had an alibi for the day that Box was placed, he was ultimately given up to 25 years in prison. The thing about the handwriting test is I, I read a couple different things regarding it. But apparently, instead of having him write in his normal handwriting, they had him try and mimic the handwriting in the letters. And then they were like, oh, yep, it's close enough to the... Close enough to whatever. It's close enough to the letters that are going out. It's close enough to the sign that's written. And I'm like, that's kind of weird. Why, you know, wouldn't you just have him... Wouldn't you read out a sentence and have him write that down in his own handwriting instead of having him mimic the handwriting it sounds like they needed a fall guy to me but i don't know maybe maybe things were just different this long ago i don't think so though <laughs> i really don't so paul Freshour is serving his prison sentence and the letters keep happening people from circleville are still receiving weird letters even though the man is supposedly behind them is sitting in jail and even stranger was the fact that paul received a letter while he was in jail and part of that letter read now, when are you going to believe you aren't going to get out of there? I told you two years ago, when we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all? Even though there was all of this evidence basically saying that Paul could in no way, shape, or form be the writer of these letters, officials still insisted he was behind them and he remained behind bars. So seven years go by and Paul was pretty much described as being a model prisoner. Even though his behavior had been what it needed to be, the parole board still chose to reject Paul's parole. And that was due to there still being letters happening outside of the prison. They assumed that Paul was somehow writing them from prison and sending them out. Even though there was no way that could be possible. It didn't, it didn't seem to matter that the Columbus postmark on the letters couldn't have been from the prison Paul was in. They continued to maintain that Paul was their guy. Even after a witness came forward and said that the about 20 minutes before Mary came through and found the box that there was a man in the area in a yellow El Camino. And it was parked at the same intersection the box was found in. The man was described as having sandy-colored hair, being a pretty big guy. And when he noticed that this other bus was coming by and saw him, he turned his body so that his back would be to the bus and acted like he was going to the bathroom. And I guess it was to keep the bus driver from being able to really see his face. Police remained undeterred even though this description didn't match Paul at all. And he continued to sit in jail, insisting that he was an innocent man. Ten years goes by. Ten years. And Paul finally makes parole in 1994, after spending ten years in prison for something he did not do. The letters finally stopped. And this is for the most part after Paul gets out of prison. They, they pretty much stop. The only other instance of one that I could find was one that was sent to Unsolved Mysteries. They were airing a special about this, this case, and they got a postcard, and all it said was, Forget Circleville, Ohio. If you come to Ohio, you El Sickos will pay. And it was signed, The Circleville Writer. 
And I, I kind of feel like maybe this one that was sent to Unsolved Mysteries was maybe like a copycat thing, or maybe they just thought, ha let me send this in, this would be good to say. Because none of the original letters had really been signed this way. They hadn't been signed as Circleville Writer, from what I could see. The only, the only one that had been signed was, there were some that were signed W, which I'll get into in a second. So I... It's, this is kind of where all the madness stops. After the postcard comes into Unsolved Mysteries, that's that's kind of it. There's That's it. There's no more weird letters. And I kind of wondered through this entire thing where Massey's wife was. So the school superintendent that Mary was supposed to be having an affair with, where was his wife through all of this? Was he, was he married? And if so, did she know about the affair? Could she be sending these letters? Because whoever the writer of the letter was, there was somebody who knew a lot about Mary and Massey. But apparently other people in the town as well. I would think somebody like a school superintendent would be pretty knowledgeable about things going around, though. Or things going on around, rather. A lot of people point to Mary as the possible culprit to the letters. Well, at least the ones she was receiving. It's pretty strange that she finally confesses after her husband dies that she's sleeping with Massey. But not until after the threatening letters. That's when their affair started, not before that she got the letters and then she had an affair, which still blows my mind. I think that's strange. I think a lot of people really throw up red flags. They, they kind of say, oh, hey, this would be the perfect, like, out for her marriage if she wanted to continue this affair with Massey. I don't... People have strange mindsets when it comes to, to things like that. There's a few other people that suggest that the writer could have been Massey's son, William, because it said that a few of the letters were signed at W, but, but that was it. They just had a W sign. So people think, well, okay, maybe William found out and, you know, maybe found out something from his dad he shouldn't have or something about his dad he shouldn't have. And he wanted to shut the affair down. He was just like, nope, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my own thing and just went to this insane degree to make sure it happened. Which, I think that's pretty unlikely. I think that's pretty out there. That's pretty sophisticated for a teenager to just be like, I just doubt that that kid would go through the efforts that this person went through. Uh, whoever the writers were, though, they did a good job of getting away with it all. Because to this day, the writers of the, the letters remain unsolved. That's pretty much it for today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Don't forget, if you'd like to donate to Better the Podcast, there's a link on my Anchor channel to do so. No pressure, though. If you'd rather not, that's cool, too. I get it. Totally do. Just go give the podcast a review and a rating on iTunes if you enjoyed it. Help get the word out. It helps a lot and helps me get on the like recommended pages and all that good stuff. So that'd be cool. Um, enjoy the holidays, guys. I know the holidays are happening. I know that some of you guys don't participate in the holidays. That's cool. That's cool too. Um, but listen, this is uh, this isn't anything that's that's sponsored in any way. I know that holidays aren't for everybody, and that's okay. They don't have to be. But if you're feeling some type of way. And you're just, you're just needing that extra bit. And you're just not, you're not okay. And everybody says it's okay to not be okay. And it is, but sometimes you need a little help. Reach out. Don't fall into that. Don't fall into that darkness. Reach out to friends and family. I'm sure that they would, they would like to hear from you more than you think that they would. But that's it for now, guys. Uh, I appreciate you all so, so much. And I hope you have a great rest of your night. And until next time, stay weird.